Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Ladies and gentlemen, we are almost there. If you are listening to this on the day it drops, it is Thursday, April 15th. We are two weeks out from the NFL draft. You know how much I love the NFL draft. And it's amazing to me because at the beginning of the off season, I always sit down and go, goodness gracious, how am I going to fill this time? I have an entire off season to fill it. And then free agency comes and the draft comes. And I realize I didn't even get in all of the ideas I wanted to get in. I wanted to do an entire book of Bruce that was specifically related to the draft. Just fundamental principles that I believe in. But we're two weeks out from the draft now. I got to start talking about more prospects. We can't be having that now. We should have had that weeks ago. So maybe next year I'll try and get that in. But there was something else that I wanted to talk about on today's pod. And that is I want to talk about traits. Now, I think we can all agree. We can all come to an agreement right now that when you are scouting players, you are not scouting production, you're scouting traits. If you were scouting production, Timmy Chang and Colt Brennan would be unbelievable NFL prospects, but they're not. Jalen Ferguson, edge rusher from Louisiana Tech, unbelievably productive. Production is not what you're looking at this time of year. What you're looking at are traits. And we can all agree with this. But here's what we don't agree with. What traits do you care about the most? And how do you weight them? So what I'm going to do is I just want to take a minute and chat about some traits that I personally am leaning towards when I watch a specific position. Things that you value. Because I'm all about exposing my own biases on this podcast. I want you to know before something happens that I have a particular fondness or a particular slant against certain things. So that way you know that I'm being intellectually honest with you. If the Bills draft a running back in the first round, depending on who it is, you already know what I'm going to say. What I'm going to say is, good player, maybe, depends on the running back they pick. I don't think it's a good value. You already know that. Which means I can't do that thing where I just say what I think you want to hear so you will agree with me. I can't say that. I'm purposely boxing myself in so that you know I'm being intellectually honest with you. Because it's very important to me. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some traits. And the thing that originally inspired this was something Joe Marino said to me when I was on the Buffalo Rumblings Vidcast Network 
along with Joe Miller. And we were talking about the running back in the first round sort of conundrum. For me, it's not a conundrum, but for other people, perhaps. And he told me that he had heard from a different individual who was talking about scouting cornerbacks. And specifically, he talked about the trait athletic confidence. This idea that you believe in your athleticism so much that you don't have to be grabby because you know your feet are going to take you there and you can twist your hips and you can run with these people. You know you can do it. So you don't have to do those things. I had never heard that before in my life. And it got my engines revving. And I started to think to myself, when we talk about traits, sometimes people don't even know what we're talking about. We're not specifically identifying the traits. They don't know how we're weighting the traits. So there's no possible way I can go through every trait with every position. It's just not possible. We would be here for three hours and I don't have that time. And you probably don't want to listen to that time, but we're going to talk about it a little bit. So while we're on the topic of corners and while I'm talking about my favorite position, let's talk about cornerback traits and some traits specifically that I like to see in my corners. The first thing that I look for when I look for corners is hip fluidity. The number one thing, the first thing I look at when I look at a corner is can he flip his hips? Now, technically, anybody can flip their hips. It's how much speed do they lose when they do it and how fluid are they? And I'll tell you why it's such an important thing for me and why I look for it so immediately when I look at cornerbacks. It's because if you don't have the ability to turn and run, that seriously limits the types of things you can do at the next level. If you have to make sure that your game is primarily played in front of you because you have to account for the fact that when you turn, you lose a ton of steam and people get on top of you and they stack you as wide receivers, then you're going to be limited at the next level. So I'm working on a new scouting system for myself for next year. I'm hoping it will be done by August when I start working again on the next year's class, but it's called the perfect player system. And what I do is I imagine a perfect player at a position and all of the things that a perfect player can do. And then I think, okay, if you are a perfect player and you can do all these things, these are all the actions that need to be completed in order to classify yourself as a perfect player. And then I go, okay, what traits and tools do you need in order to complete those actions? So you might say for a corner, for example, you might say, okay, I need him to be able to play well in press. Great. Now tell me what you need a prospect to do in order to play well in press. Well, he's got to have a reasonable length. He has to have good press chronology. You've heard me talk about this before, feet then hands. You lunge, it doesn't work. Hand placement has to be good. So those are some things that you need to have in order to play press well. And playing press well is part of the perfect player. So then as I'm looking at a player, I think to myself, okay, can they do these things? Or have they exhibited that they can do these things? And that gets them closer and closer and closer to being a perfect player or farther and farther and farther from being a perfect player. And that's kind of the way that I have it set up. And everyone has 
different structures, but that's the way that I have it set up. And I started working on that this year. And so this year's scouting reports for me are like this weird hybrid (laughs) between my old system and my new system. And I'm kind of hoping that I have it completely fully operational, like the Death Star, hopefully by August. So we'll see. But that's an example of traits that I care about when it comes to the corner position, hips and ability to play and press. Sometimes you'll hear this referred to as oily hips. He has oily hips. It means it's smooth. It's fluid. It's someone whose hip elevation isn't too high. When you hear me say someone hip elevation is too high, they're too upright in their stance and their backpedal. And because of that, when they turn, they're not able to generate enough power from their lower half to be able to not slow down because their hips were too high. Having your hips low and being able to take quick shuffle steps allows you to explode when you turn and that allows you to not lose as much speed during your turn. So I'm looking at hips. I'm looking at press technique. These are some things that I like to see in my corners. Now, those aren't the only traits. Those aren't the only traits I look at, but there's two examples of traits that I like that I'm biased towards. When you look at running backs, which is a extremely popular pick for the Buffalo Bills this year at 30 and throughout the draft. I look at vision and contact balance first. I have said before that I think vision and contact balance establish the floor of the player. Athletic gifts and other things establish the rest of the ceiling. If you don't have vision and contact balance at a satisfactory level, I don't really care too much how fast you are. I don't care how good your hands are. You will be very, very limited in your role if you don't have vision and contact balance. I'll give you great examples. Anthony McFarlane and Javian Hawkins. Anthony McFarlane from a couple years ago from Maryland. Javian Hawkins this year coming out from Louisville. Why on earth are players that explosive going on day three of the draft? Why? It's not because they don't have positive traits. It's because the traits they have don't line up with a role that's overly valuable in the NFL. This is the same reason why no running back ever gets a first round grade from me. Because I don't think the position and the role that you're going to play on a team is worth that high of an investment. No punter ever gets a day two grade from me. No specialist at all gets a day two grade. If you are a two down run-stuffing defensive tackle, you can't get a first-round grade from me. It's not possible. You can't do it. I'll never give you a first-round grade, no matter how good of a run defender you are, because that role isn't worth that expenditure. The asset allocation is incorrect. So why on earth are Anthony McFarland and Javian Hawkins day three picks? How is that possible? They've got blazing speed. They can get the home run. Anthony McFarland was an absolute nightmare against my team, Ohio State Buckeyes a couple years ago. How on earth is he going day three? It's because if you don't have the vision and contact balance, you're going to be designated satellite running back. If you're a third down running back, that means number one, you only have value for a team that doesn't have a three down running back. And number two, if you don't have a team who has a three down running back, you're still only on there in obvious passing downs. One out of four downs you play. Typically, they don't play special teams. 
Sometimes they can return for you. That helps a little bit. But that role isn't worth more than a day three pick. That's the reason why they go there. And I think that's because of vision and contact balance. If you don't have vision and contact balance, the floor for your projection at the next level immediately drops out from underneath you. So that's the way that I look at running backs. I start with vision and contact balance and I go from there. We are going to take a quick break. We are going to come back. We're going to talk about some more traits. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We have been talking about traits and specifically some notable traits, the tale of the traits, if you will, as it relates to specific positions in my personal biases, the way that I'm wired. And we talked about corners, oily hips, good in press. We talked about running backs, vision, contact balance. Now we're going to talk about wide receivers. The first thing I want to know, and one of the most difficult things to know about a wide receiver coming out of college is how's their release package? This is one of the reasons why scouting SEC wide receivers has a tendency to be a little bit easier because they face more press coverage. Can this receiver get off press? Why is that so important to Bruce? It's because if they can't, they're relegated to slot duty in the NFL. It's the same logic that I take with the JV and Hawkinses and the Anthony McFarlands of the world. If you can't get off press, if you don't have the quickness, the hand usage, the suddenness to be able to get off of press coverage, then what I can do with you at the next level is limited. If you look at players like Isaiah Hodgins, that was one of the big questions about him coming out. It's one of the reasons why I classified him as being a big slot receiver last year. He's a big slot. I compared him to David Nelson, former Bills receiver. And the reason I did that is because I didn't see him get off press well at Oregon State. So that really limits what he can do. If you can get off press, you have a shot to be an outside receiver. But that's the foundational piece because if you can't get off press, none of the rest of that stuff matters because defenses will figure you out. Well, Bruce, he's really good at the route stem. Okay, he can't get off press. Well, Bruce, he can make contested catches. He can't get off press. You're limited so much by the fact that you can't get off the line of scrimmage. If there is an easy fix to your skill set as a defense, that's a problem. And that's why it starts with vision and contact balance for running backs. And it starts with your ability to get off press and beat press as a wide receiver. After that, okay, he can get off press or we know he can't get off press. That's been established. Either way, the next thing I care about is pretty clear and it's hands. Can you catch the ball? I know that's weird, but there's specific ways. Is he framing the ball correctly? Does he have good body control when he's making contested catches? Is he catching it with his hands or is he letting it get into his chest? These things matter at the next level. Because this person has been catching balls 
for the vast majority of their life. Could they get better at it at the next level? Sure, they can get better at the next level. However, it's less likely because if they were going to get better at the next level, then they probably already could have using the jugs machine. Hand-eye coordination, reaction time, all these things are built into catching the ball. And so those are things that I look at immediately when I'm starting to look at a wide receiver. I'll watch the same play over and over and over again. Say, okay, let's talk about this. Now, sometimes that's an NA. Sometimes it's a not available. And then you go, okay, maybe he can't get off press because I've never seen him do it, but he played in the Pac-12 or he played in the Big 12 and he didn't face a lot of those press coverages that you may face in the Big 10 and you might face in the SEC, the ACC. So then you go, okay, can I, can I project out that he might be able to? So what do you need to beat press coverage? Well, quickness, hand usage. So let's look at him when he blocks. Let's look at him when he blocks. Surely he's blocked before. So let's check out his blocks. Does he have good hand punch, hand placement when he's blocking? What kind of effort level does he put in when he gets hung up? This matters to me because if I know that you can't do it, that's different than not seeing you do it. And if I can't see you do it, then the next question is, well, could he be taught to do it? Now, that's not as strong of a statement as he does it, but it's not as bad of a statement as he can't do it either. Instead, it's somewhere in the middle. This is where it gets really gray. Okay, I haven't seen him beat press, but I think he has the tools to beat press. And that's the way that I look at wide receivers. Right off the bat, can they get off press? Can they catch the ball? Moving on to a different position. Let's look at edge rusher, a popular pick for the Buffalo Bills at 30th overall. Seen Jalen Phillips, Quiddy Pay, Azizo Jalari. Jason Owe. When I'm watching edge rushers and taking into account the perfect player system that I was talking to you about, the way I do it, the process by which I scout players, if you are a perfect pass rusher at the next level, you have to be able to attack the inside half and the outside half of an offensive tackle. You have to be able to do both. If you can only do one, you can still have success in the NFL, just not as much success. I want to see both. I want to see your ability to flatten angles and be able to play through the outside half of an offensive tackle. And if you get stopped there, I want to see a counter move. I want to see you be able to counter inside. Sometimes you'll hear the phrase, does he rush with a plan? Does he have a plan with his pass rush? And sometimes what people mean when they're talking about that is you'll see one move and they get stopped by the offensive tackle. And then all of a sudden they go, I don't know what to do. You just get stuck on a block. I don't know. I don't have a plan. I didn't think this far ahead. So when I see a dip and rip under the outside edge and I see a great corner turn and a bend and some ankle flexibility, I go, yes, that's awesome. Great. Now show me an inside move. Show me something else. Show me that you can attack an offensive tackle from multiple angles. Show me you can corner against him. Show me you can work through the outside hip. 
show me you can work through the inside hip. Because that's what a perfect player can do. So as I'm going through those things, how many different ways can you win? Because if you only have one trick and that trick is awesome, you can still be a reasonable player. But I don't take players like that high. Because the role of that player might be a DPR, a designated pass rush specialist. Maybe they can't be an every down player for you. Because they only have one trick. Now, their one trick might be good. But you can't make a living long-term in the NFL on one trick. You can't do it. So that's what I look at when I look at pass rushers in the NFL. Specifically when it comes to pass rushing. Playing the run is a whole different thing. But can you do both? Can you attack the outside hip and the inside hip? And when it comes to outside hip, can you bend and turn the corner and work through the offensive tackle or are you just avoiding contact if you're just avoiding contact at the defensive end that's fine but that's not good enough by itself one of the players that i'll use as an example for this is washington pass rusher joe tryon joe tryon in the low 250s but he's tall and he's bendy But that is a player who needs the angles in his favor right now in the NFL to win consistently. He's got the bend. He's got length. But he needs the angles. So I'm not less high on Joe Tryon. I just don't like him in a seven tech spot on a defensive line. I think he needs to be a three, four stand up pass rusher or he needs to be in a wide nine alignment like a Jim Schwartz-ish defense. I think Mike Pettin-style defenses would really like him. So I'm not saying he's a bad player. I'm saying that when I look at Joe Tryon, I see someone who can win in limited ways. I love his bend around the outside. I just think he needs right now hit the angles in his favor. Could he develop into something else? Possibly. But right now he doesn't show it. So I have a day two grade on Tryon. And I think he'd be a better fit in a wide nine or a three, four. That's an example of a player who I watched and said, wow, this guy has a trick I really like, but he's not a perfect prospect because he doesn't do all the things I like. So then you have to go, okay, what things does he do well? And what role does that establish for him? And where does that make him fit? So we established the things that he's good at. Okay, if you're good at those things, where are you going to fit? Where is your best fit as a pro based on the things you do well? And the answer is, I think it's a 3-4 or a wide 9 defensive scheme. And just like the athletic confidence thing that Joe Marino brought up to me a while back when it comes to corners, there's something like that with pass rushers too. It's do they have confidence in their plan? Are they rushing with a plan? If this guy stops me here, I have a plan set up to go to as a counter move or am I only confident in this thing this one move that I do I'm going to do this thing and if it doesn't work then I don't know I guess I'll just try it again next snap confidence is a really funny thing and my wheels got spinning when I started to kind of dwell on what Joe had told me in regards to athletic confidence being something that was a trait that people looked for and I heard a pastor one time say that 
confidence is interesting because where your confidence comes from determines when it runs out. And the reason why I think that's interesting is because I think it applies to NFL players and prospects. Are you confident in your technique or are you confident in your athleticism? And I think that one of the reasons why I value technique so much as a person who loves to watch football is because athleticism is fantastic and wonderful. And I want athletes. I do. I absolutely do. But if you, as a player, put all of your confidence in your ability to out-athlete someone, what happens when you reach someone who's a better athlete than you? What happens when you pull a hammy? What happens when you're playing dinged up? If all of your confidence is in your athleticism, better hope none of those things ever happen to you. Better hope you never come across a better athlete. Better hope you never have to play dinged up. Because where your confidence comes from determines when it runs out. If your confidence is in your technique, it's probably going to last for a long time. And this is why you see pass rushers who are good technicians have long careers in this league. Because even when they don't quite have the step they used to, they still have long productive careers in the NFL because their confidence was in their technique. We do this all the time in our real life. We put all our confidence in our looks and then we lose our marbles when we get older and our skin starts to sag and our hair starts to get gray. We put all our confidence in our ability to be physical athletes and then our body betrays us as we get older. We put all of our confidence in our job and then we get fired or we retire. We don't know who we are anymore. But athletes do it too. They put all their confidence in their athleticism. And then all of a sudden, They can't do that at the next level. Now, I will openly admit that sometimes I go too far the opposite direction. Sometimes I don't account for freak athletes as much as I should. I think one of the reasons why I'm a little lower on J.C. Horn than some people, and people give me crap about this because they're like, oh, you hate J.C. Horn. No, I don't. I have a first round grade on J.C. Horn. (laughs) I just don't have him as high as other people do. Is the same reason I was a little bit down on D.K. Metcalf. It's because athleticism by itself doesn't mean as much to me as it probably should. One of the things I'm working on fixing is working on fixing the part of my scouting process where I undervalue people who are freakish athletes. Because when I looked at DK Metcalf, I saw shades of Stephen Hill. Now, most of my Metcalf concerns, you know, were injury related, right? Neck injury, foot injury, very serious stuff. I just think it's an interesting subnote as far as where the player gets his confidence from. And if I was going to ask a player a question, we don't do things like that on this pod. Say, where does your confidence come from? Are you confident in your athleticism? Are you confident in your technique? What are you confident in your coaching? Where do you get your confidence from? I just think that'd be valuable. But that's an entirely different tangent. Before we get out of here, we are going to go through a couple almighty takes because I want to make sure I polish them off. Jeremy Campbell emailed me at IamBruceAlmighty at Yahoo.com. And he said, hey, Bruce, off the jump, I just want to say your content's always top notch. I know how much work goes into not only the recording twice this past week, but the planning, outlining, and idea generation is very much appreciated by this Bills fan down in New York City. Jeremy, thank you. On to the question. I feel like my spirit animal is some amalgam of you and Greg Thompson as each of your processes around relative valuation, cap management, and team building just seem to vibe with my way of thinking. 
outside of your condiment-less hot dog takes. Not on board with that. As a guy that appreciates all the quantifiable metrics and philosophies, I want to get your thoughts around something intangible. Culture. Culture is absolutely real, and I love what McDermott and Bean have done to build culture at one Bills drive, and you can start seeing the fruits of that labor with players opting return to the Bills at sub-market contracts. But how do continuously great teams continue to keep the culture strong when sometimes it's best for the team to move on from a core guy that opted to take a hometown discount to a more talented player? For example, if the Bills had the opportunity to add a great talent this year or next year that is a clear and material upgrade to McKenzie, Feliciano, or Williams, all of whom are beloved in the locker room but have a manageable dead cap in the future, does that cause hard feelings or culture backlash? Or, because this is a business and all these guys are professionals, is that not really a concern? As always, I appreciate your thoughts and keep up the stellar work. Best, Jeremy. So I'd love to take credit for this original idea, but I'm not going to. Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean talked about this a little bit. And they said the best thing you can possibly do is be honest with players. Because it will come back to bite you if you try to snow a player. That agent is going to talk. They all know. Everyone knows what front offices around the NFL you can trust and what you, which ones you can't. They know this. It's a small world in the NFL. Everybody knows everybody. And if you don't make promises to a player that you can't keep, hey, Isaiah, come back on this one-year deal. We promise we'll give you a bigger role in the offense. Don't do that. If you do that and then cut them, yes, there will be hard feelings because you got lied to by the front office. And you'll tell your next team and you'll tell your agent and your agent will tell his other clients. So when you're signing Isaiah McKenzie, don't make promises you can't keep. Hey, Isaiah, we want you to come back. We want you to keep doing the role you've been doing. We want to give you a crack at doing that thing. We want to give you a shot at potentially being the returner. I'm not promising you a job. We're going to bring in competition. You're going to have to earn it. But we like what you bring to this team. We'd like you back. Don't make promises you can't keep. You've heard me talk about this before. Disappointment is a mathematical equation. Expectations minus reality equals disappointment. You can actually quantify it. If your expectations of a date with your girlfriend were a 10 and your reality was a 4, your disappointment level is a 6. That's literally a mathematical construct. Guess one of those things you can control. Expectations. You can set them appropriately for a player. You can set them appropriately for an employee. You can set them appropriately for an employer. You can set them appropriately for your spouse and your kids and your friends. Expectation setting and transparency take a lot of the conflict out of relationships. And that's how you maintain the culture. You maintain the culture because then if you have a person in your locker room who values honesty, then they're probably going to be a good fit in your culture anyway. And then if you cut them, you didn't lie to them. And they go, listen, I'm not happy that they cut me. I think I'm the better player. But they were honest with me. They were always up front with me. And those same type of traits are going to keep the culture going. So the answer to this question is something that they already talked about. Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott, which is being up front with players when you're cutting them, when you're signing them, just tell them the truth. Almighty take 
from J-A-O-H-L-1 on Twitter. Says his almighty take is the Bills draft Eric Stokes and Rondale Moore. They put Eric Stokes on Rondale Moore during every practice. Iron sharpens iron, and we have our answer to Tyreek Hill, as well as a Tyreek Hill of our own. Oh man, that'd be fun. Rondale Moore is such a weird evaluation. I feel like nobody in the NFL knows what to do with Rondale Moore. I've seen him in the first round. I've seen him in high in the third. It's insane. Because like Caleb Farley, the talent is obvious. The injuries are serious. So I would not complain at all. Stokes at 30 and Rondale Moore at 61. Sign me up immediately. MJ says, his almighty take on Twitter, the Bills' backup quarterback position becomes a rotating door of former hyped quarterbacks looking for short-term deals to increase their value. 2022 backup will be Sam Darnold, who leaves the Jets, who declined to pick up the fifth-year option. Now, you wrote this before Darnold went and got traded to the Panthers. So they already picked up his fifth-year option, so obviously this won't happen. But, but, the idea that you could have this backup position become a rotating door of former quarterbacks who are trying to kind of take a year off might work if Dable stays longer. If Dable doesn't stay longer, then maybe not. Because I think that the offensive coordinator position is a really important part of that backup quarterback spot. And I don't think you're going to get the consistency in players wanting to come there and take a year off if they don't necessarily already have the data from the offensive coordinator. So I don't think you're going to get it consistently if you don't have consistency as offensive coordinator. And if you don't have Brian Dable back, you might not get it. Jeremy Gugino emailed me. I am Bruce Almighty at yahoo.com. Said several weeks ago, someone on the locker room app, I do live show on Thursday evenings at 7 o'clock p.m. on the locker room app, took a swing regarding Bruce's profession. I was surprised to hear that so many people had so many guesses. Scientist, lawyer, professor, etc. He's none of those people. If you have followed Bruce's commentaries and interviews, he has left enough breadcrumbs to nail his profession down to two fields, one of which is more likely than the other. Mind you, I have no connection to Bruce beyond his email address. I don't even know how to Twitter. Thank God. Like a poker player who shows his tell, Bruce has left enough clues that even the FBI could figure out what line of work he is in. I suggest you go back and listen to his and his ex-partner Nick's interviews. You should be able to figure it out. And that was it. He didn't tell me what it was. He just said he knew. So maybe Jeremy's FBI. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. 35 minutes. We did it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Bruce Exclusive. Thank you, as always, for everything that you do. I cannot possibly tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you for all of your interactions with me. Thank you for emails. Thank you for comments. Thank you for the five-star reviews that you leave. It truly means an unbelievably great deal to me. And that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings.